Church family, open your copies of God's Word to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 together. Perhaps you are considering how you might respond in, uh, at the advent of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, or perhaps how you would respond if you saw a celebrity or someone that you particularly admired. Would you praise and uh, praise them and be excited about it, or would, it, would uh, perhaps there are some famous people that you do not like at all? Would you be frustrated at their presence like the Pharisees? When you put yourself into the shoes of those that were there in Jesus' day, how... How might you have responded? What group would you have been a part of? Those that were on the side of the road, cheering him, welcoming him? Or like those Pharisees, those Sadducees who were frustrated, upset at the fact that he was taking away from some of their attention? What would you do if you met a famous person that you really looked up to that wasn't all that you thought they were or wasn't all that they were cracked up to be? Then what? As we read uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, We see him coming into Jerusalem, that holy city, the last time before his crucifixion, in a way that divides people and separates those who witness his coming into two different groups, those who receive him, those who don't. But the way that he comes into Jerusalem is in a way that most specifically demonstrates just what kind of person he is. He is a king, and and the way that he comes in demonstrates just what kind of king he is. There's so much wrapped up into this one moment. In Matthew 21, 1 through 11, we read uh, similar stories in uh, all four Gospels, or similar telling of the same story in all four Gospels. But the main idea of Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, is this, that Jesus is a different kind of king. As he comes into Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday, he comes in as a king, but a different kind of king. Church family, would you stand with me as you're comfortably able as we read God's Word? Matthew 21 verses 1 through 11. There, Matthew, that tax collector, former tax collector and disciple of Jesus, uh, writes in his uh, history of Jesus' life, And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus comes into Jerusalem that last Sunday of his earthly life as a different kind of king. What does Matthew 21 in, or Matthew in his gospel here tell us about what kind of king Jesus is? Well, first of all, he tells us that Jesus is no ordinary human king. He's far more than that. He is divine. 
This truth is evident to us in the first just few verses of this passage, but specifically there in verse 3. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem from the east of the city, they stopped there at the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And there, Jesus commands his disciples to go into a nearby village where they would find a donkey and a colt tied up, and they were to untie those animals and bring them to Jesus for his use. Now, it's possible that Jesus knew the family to whom these Uh, these two animals belonged, and maybe he had even arranged beforehand for their use. But either way, he sends the disciples to go and get them. And the disciples are to go and bring those animals back to Jesus. And if anyone says anything to the disciples, Jesus instructs them, saying, if anybody says anything to you about it, tell them that the Lord needs them. Now that word Lord means most plainly something like master or owner, maybe king. Here's the catch in this passage. Jesus isn't the owner of these donkeys. He isn't the one who bought them. He's not the one who bred them. He didn't raise them. He isn't the one paying for their feed or tending to their health. And yet Jesus has the audacity to claim that he is Lord of the donkeys and that he, as Lord of the donkeys, can command their use. It's easy for us with all the assumptions that we bring to the Bible to miss the significance of what Jesus is saying here and what Matthew, the gospel writer, is emphasizing for us about who Jesus is. Often when we come to the Bible, we come to it with the assumption that whenever that word Lord is used, that it must be about God, it must be about Christ, and we just sort of roll with it. Yeah, of course Jesus is Lord, he can do whatever he wants. But for Jesus' disciples to say to the owners of the donkeys... The Lord needs them. They are saying to the owners of these animals that Jesus, as Lord, is master, not only of the donkeys, but also of the people who own them. That Jesus, as Lord, has the authority to command not only the use of animals, but to command the will of those who own the animals. That word Lord does a lot of heavy lifting in this passage Because it also invokes for us the personal name of God that's given to us in the Old Testament. Whenever you see that word Lord in in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, you are reading where God's personal name is used. In Hebrew, it's something like Yahweh. We're not really sure how it was pronounced because it was never pronounced out loud by God's people. So whenever they were reading the Old Testament and they came across God's personal name, they would substitute it with uh, the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the more generic word for Lord or Master. Or they might even use the the stand-in word Hashem, which means the name. So when Jesus calls himself Lord, he's doing something. He is intentionally implying not just that he's master of these people and master of these animals, but he's master of the universe, that he's master of the cosmos, that he as Lord is God, that he is Adonai, that he is all caps L-O-R-D. Jesus is no ordinary king. He's divine. Matthew also points out to us that Jesus is not a new king. He's been expected. Jesus isn't doing something new and spontaneous here. He's doing something that has fulfilled long told and long looked forward to promises among God's people. In verses 4 and 5, Matthew writes that all of this took place. The disciples go and get the donkeys and bring them to Jesus. All of it took place to fulfill. That means to fill up with meaning, to accomplish, to bring about what two prophets had written about hundreds of years prior to the moment of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. 
In verse 5, Matthew combines two uh, words from two prophets, uh, two prophecies, one from Isaiah 62, verse 11, and one from Zechariah uh, 9, verse 9. And these prophets, Isaiah living about 700 years before Jesus, Zechariah living about 500 years before Jesus, these two prophets, 200 years separated from each other and over 500 years separated from Jesus, both prophesied about a coming king who would reign in the name of the Lord, in the name of the one true God, who would bring salvation to God's people, and who would be the hope of salvation to the whole world. Listen to what Zechariah says in Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king that Zechariah and that Isaiah prophesied about would be from the line of David. He would be a descendant of that great king. He would enter into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, and he would have salvation that would bring the people of God to praise him. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening. As Jesus, on a donkey, rides into Jerusalem uh, atop the palm branches that were laid before him, the people there are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. That word Hosanna means something literally like, the Lord saves, or Lord save us. But by the time of Jesus' day, it was just a general word of praise to God. It comes from Psalm 118, which we read in our call to worship this morning. These people are saying, praise to God, the Son of David is here. Now, the people didn't seem to understand all that was happening in the moment. They understood that Jesus was coming in as some kind of king. Did they understand all that was going on? I don't think so, because even the disciples themselves had trouble understanding the significance of so much of what Jesus did and said until after they had witnessed him crucified and resurrected. But Matthew, in writing down these historic events, reminds everyone who read them, and us today, that this Jesus is not a new king. He's not a new savior. He's not doing something spontaneous here, but he is the very king, the very savior that God had promised so many hundreds of years before. That's not uncommon today to hear folks talking about Jesus as uh, being some sort of political revolutionary. That, that he was a different kind of zealot in that day who, who wanted uh, the, the Romans out of Jerusalem, although he, he opposed the kind of violent insurrection that many other zealots of his, of his day uh, uh, would support and try to bring against Rome. People who are skeptical of Jesus uh, being some sort of king or who would like to say that the people just thought of him as a king, but he'd never thought of himself that way, they theorized that Jesus was just a, a product of his own time, that, that he was the culmination of centuries of political frustration, and he was just bringing a new word of the same hope to a beleaguered people. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write their Gospels in contradiction to this assumption. They write to clearly demonstrate to us that Jesus is not a surprise, that he's not just the culmination of centuries of political frustration among God's people, but that he is the long-awaited Savior, the expected King, the Son of David, in whom rested all of the hope of God's people and the world. Jesus is not an ordinary human king. He's divine. And Jesus is not a new king. He's the expected one. Third, Matthew shows us that Jesus is not a warrior king, but one who comes to make peace. 
It was most common in the ancient world when kings were going to war or returning from war to ride into the city of their dwelling on a horse, on an animal that was bred and trained for battle. But when the kingdom was at peace, kings would ride through their cities, not on horses, but on donkeys, which are animals that were bred and trained for pulling plows and bearing burdens of harvest in times of peace. The expected king that would bring salvation to God's people, Jesus, is not entering the city on a horse to make war against it, but on a donkey, indicating that he is a king who comes to bring peace. Now, the peace that Jesus brings is not a peace, it's not a political peace between Judea and Rome. It's not a peace most immediately between human enemies. Instead, Jesus comes to make peace between humankind and God. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, he says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, speaking to a church that was of mixed uh, background. You had some people who were, who were who have Gentile background, some who are of Jewish background, all of them trusting in Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, as King. And Paul is speaking to them saying, how could it be other than by Christ's death on the cross, which makes us at peace with God, that these two people, Jews and Gentiles, could actually get along together? It only happens because God has made all of us, at, or Christ has made all of us at peace with God by dying for sins. And if Christ can die for sins and reconcile us to God, how much more then can we be reconciled to each other? See this this morning, friends, and don't miss it. Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king who comes to bring sinners to peace with God. And he doesn't do this just by riding in on a donkey. Jesus brings peace between sinners and God at the end of that week as he is put to death on a cross for the sins of the world. And as Paul writes, it was his death that reconciles those who trust in him to their creator. And if we can be made at peace with God in Christ, then there is nothing in Christ that keeps us from being reconciled to each other. He's not a warrior king. He's a king who comes to bring peace. But someone will say, Pastor, I was reading in Matthew earlier this week, and I read Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10 that, that he said that he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and that a person's own family would be his enemies. What about that, Pastor? And I would say, you are correct. You're reading your Bible well. Jesus did say that. But what he meant there was not that he comes to bring people, to, to put people at war against each other. But that he, uh, he, as the king, comes to uh, call people to alliance, to allegiance. And those who trust in him will be separated, will be at enmity from those who reject him. Those who receive the king will be at odds with those who reject the king. So Jesus is the king who comes to make peace, yes. But those who reject him and refuse him will still be at enmity with God. Jesus is not an ordinary human king. He's a divine one. Jesus is not a new king. He's an expected one. Jesus is not a warrior king, but one who comes to bring peace. 
And finally, we see in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is not the desired king, but he is the one that we need. The final verses of the passage of, uh, of uh, Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11, find the whole city stirred up, moved there in an uproar over the commotion of a crowd, singing, Hosanna to the King of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And some were asking, who is this? Asking that of Jesus. Now, they're not asking because they don't know who Jesus is. Jesus was relatively popular in that day. Already he had become sort of infamous among the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well. As Luke writes in his gospel, there are some Pharisees who say, Teacher, tell your disciples to shut up. So you have all these people in Matthew's gospel asking, Who is this? And not in the sense of, Who is this guy on this donkey? But who does this guy think he is? Causing such a fuss in this city. Who, who does this, who does this, what does this fellow think of himself? What gives him the right to make this declaration, even for all the expectation that had been building for God's king to come, that king was, uh, the king that was desired by many was one who would reign as a warrior and a political conqueror. They wanted another king like David who would crush all their enemies. Not some prophet from the backwater town of Nazareth. Who does this guy think he is? So when Jesus comes into the city with all of this hullabaloo around him, many people are incredulous. They're even mocking. They, they, they are going to lengths in their own mind to try to figure what in the world is happening. The Pharisees, as we said, Luke records, telling in his gospel, telling Jesus' disciples to be quiet, telling Jesus to command his disciples to be quiet, so as to say, Jesus, you know that, that these people are making too much of this situation. You've got to stop them. The people who were there that day saw all the signs. The people of Jerusalem were not dumb. (laughs) They're not unwitting participants in this this parade. They knew that everything about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was meant to look royal. Everything about this says, this is a king coming into his capital. This was a kingly entrance, if ever there was one. And yet, because he wasn't the kind of king that the people desired, they failed to see him for the king that he really was. Even those who were most excited about him didn't understand what he was, who he was. They call him a prophet. Who is this? This is a prophet from Nazareth. And they weren't entirely wrong. Jesus certainly did speak God's true words to the people, but he's so much more than a prophet. He's so much more than just a good teacher. He was God in the flesh. He's the prophesied Messiah, the Christ, the one who would give his life as a ransom for sinners He was the king that they needed, even if they didn't recognize him. After nearly 2,000 remembrances of this Palm Sunday, the truth is still before us that Jesus is a different kind of king. He's not like the figureheads of so many political monarchies today. He's not like the hot new social media influencers He's not the next great military general who will crush every earthly enemy in his path. Jesus is not, in so many ways, the king that we want. But this scripture reminds us that he is the king that we absolutely need. He died to pay for our sins that we might be at peace with God. He's the fullness of God's promise to care for his people. He is God of very God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, in the flesh, greater in every way than any king that ever lived. 
Friends, in all of this, there is one certain and clear truth to each of us hearing this word today. One call to all of us in response. Rejoice in Jesus and receive him as king. He comes as a different kind of king, maybe not the one you want, maybe not the one you would envision or imagine, but the one that you and your soul desperately need. So rejoice in Jesus and receive him as king. The wonderful beauty of the Gospels, these four histories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that they help us to see all that Christ is with crystal clarity. Seeing him as the king we need, as this king from God, this king who was expected, this king who makes us at peace with the Lord. Seeing him clearly for all that he is gives us a couple of options. We can either rejoice in him as that promised, divine, grace-giving king, or we can reject him entirely. What is not an option when it comes to Jesus and what the Gospels reveal to us of him is to be indifferent. What is not an option is to not make a decision about what to do with Jesus. What is not an option is for us to think that Jesus was merely a good teacher, merely a prophet of sorts from a backwater town who had some good and encouraging things to say and lived a nice life. Our only options are to receive him as king or to reject him entirely, but there is no space for indifference when it comes to him. Uh, Great author C.S. Lewis famous for writing the Chronicles of Narnia series, wrote several other books as well, Uh, was a convert from atheism to Christianity in the uh, mid-1900s. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his more influential books, Mere Christianity, he said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Some have said in light of this argument that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord, that C.S. Lewis misses one more option. Maybe Jesus was just a legend. Maybe he was a a nice guy from a backwater town who had some good things to say, and in the years after his death, his disciples and some other people that were particularly inspired by the things that he said, they got together and they made up these stories, and they kind of built them up to be a little bit larger than life, and it developed into this movement, and so all of these people are just following a legend, uh, kind of on par with the myths of Zeus and Athena and... Uh, maybe the, the bales of ancient Palestine or, or perhaps uh, Hindu gods like Vishnu or Krishna. Maybe legends like those that surround the person of, of Buddha. It's just a, an historical person or stories that are made up to, to try to build something up to bigger than it is and, and gather people together around some, some common values and, and spur a movement of peace and love forward. Maybe Jesus was just a legend. And friends, maybe that would be the case if... A man, like the, uh, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who was previously a Jew, who 
vehemently disagreed with the claim that Christ was Lord, within 10 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, who previously was killing and persecuting Christians and giving approval to their public execution, if that man Saul had not come to have some sort of experience that changed him from being a total opposer of Christ to one of Christ's greatest evangelists, one of the greatest missionaries in all of Christian history. Perhaps we could say Jesus was a legend if it weren't for people like Paul, who so quickly after Jesus' death and resurrection went from being a violent opposer of Christianity to one of its greatest advocates in all of history. People don't make turns like that on a dime because of a legend. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You could try to call him a legend, but that argument doesn't really hold water. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being something like a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. And friends, neither did any other author of God's word, our scriptures that are before us this morning, intend to give us any other option but to fall at his feet and call him Lord. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that, last, that, that first Palm Sunday, the last Sunday of his life, he came in as a king to rule and to reign over God's kingdom. His, his rule and reign, which is purchased, and, and its commodity is salvation and grace. And he was celebrated by many who didn't quite understand what he was yet. He was opposed by many who thought they knew exactly what he was claiming to be, but rejected him entirely and the claims that he was making about himself. In light of that, and those two responses, we, we have one as well. What do we do with this Jesus? Do we receive him with gladness? Do we celebrate and rejoice at his coming? Do we see that he is God? Do we see that he, he, he's the one that God has promised? He's not just spontaneous. He's not God's plan B. He's plan A prime. He's like before. He's whatever comes before plan A. He's the only plan God has ever had. And that he makes us at peace with God and he gives us hope and purpose and meaning in life. And greater than anything, he brings forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with our creator. Have we come to see him as that? Or are we holding on to maybe some other illustration, some other imagination of what Jesus as king must be. And are we wanting him to be that? Friends, if you're coming to Jesus to be a kind of king of your own imagining, you will always be disappointed with Jesus. He will never live up to your expectations. My encouragement to you this morning is shift your expectations. Shift your expectations of the kind of king that Jesus is to the kind of, uh, or the kind of king that Jesus ought to be to the kind of G- king that uh, the scriptures say that Jesus is. He's the king who's God in the flesh. He's the one we've been expecting. He brings salvation for sinners. Friend, how have you received Jesus, this different kind of king? How are you living out what it means to be a follower of this different kind of king? Has the identity of Jesus shaped and molded your life as a Christian in the world? Do people know, the lost people that you meet, do they know what kind of king Jesus is by the kind of life that you live? I would submit to you that everyone has some idea about who Jesus is, and a lot of their ideas about who Jesus is come from the way that Christians live. And if if much of the world sees Jesus as something less than what Scripture says, perhaps we as Christians have, have to remind ourselves of the kind of king that Jesus is. Let us do that today. 
Let us shape our hearts by the truth of who this Christ is, what kind of king he truly is, and let us live that in the world in a way that draws other people to this different kind of king. Let's pray together.